listening to Pythagoras' Trousers. Hello and welcome to this month's Pythagorean Astronomy with me, Chris North. And me, Edward Gomez. Well, Edward, the big story of this month has been uh, black holes, or one very specific black hole, uh, the closest supermassive black hole right in the centre of our own galaxy. It goes by the name of Sagittarius A star, uh, so-called because it's in the centre of the Sagittarius, or located in the Sagittarius constellation, but it really is the the heart of our galaxy, isn't it? As Patrick Moore described it, it's like two fried eggs back-to-back, our Milky Way galaxy, with a bulge in the middle and uh, tapering out towards the the ends. And we're about um, two-thirds of the way from the centre in our solar system. And our galaxy has spiral arms, so this is sort of flattened shape. Uh, and it's like a like a Catherine wheel, actually a, the firework, a Catherine wheel. It it turns around, it rotates, and at the very centre is this supermassive black hole, as sort of the the hub of the wheel. I think one of the things that's, that's interesting about these supermassive black holes. So that, to give us a sense of scale, this thing is a few million times the mass of our sun. It's it's absolutely enormous. And the previous one that had been observed in the galaxy M eighty seven, which was released a, a couple of years ago. Uh, that was about a, a couple of billion times the mass of our sun. So these th- these things are, are really, really massive. And that sounds enormous, but compared to the mass of the galaxy overall, it's actually not very much. Uh, you know, the, the galaxy itself is, what, a million, million solar masses or something? Yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah, absolutely exactly. enormous in mass. But what's interesting is that uh, astronomers have discovered over the years is that there's a really strong correlation between how big that supermassive black hole is and how massive the galaxy is, or something a bulge in the centre of the galaxy. And so I guess one of the questions that, that needs to be answered still is, which it's, it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing, which came first, the supermassive black hole or the galaxy? Is the supermassive black hole grown because the galaxy has got bigger? Or has the galaxy got bigger because the supermassive black hole got bigger? Yeah, and it's it's a really interesting question because we don't we don't really understand how galaxies form. Um, uh, there's lots of ideas that... Um, Uh, Various people have proposed in the past that they start off as ball shapes or elliptical galaxies. uh, And then over time, as they start spinning, they flatten out into spiral galaxies. But um, opposite um, ideas have have come in that uh, through mergers that uh, galaxies, you know, get their their spiral arm shapes and irregular galaxies are galaxies which have been uh, which have just a a very strange shape. And they've been ripped apart by other galaxies. Um, and it's uh, it's really not known very well how galaxies form and how these supermassive black holes get in the centre of a galaxy. Um, you know, are they things that are left over from the Big Bang or are they... Uh, so they were formed along with the Big Bang or whether they were formed at the end of the life of some stars and then they all clumped together and they attracted each other and they formed, you know, one black hole formed you know with another black hole made uh, a black hole that was twice as big and then they did that many millions of times and or over time they started off much smaller and went through a rapid growth at the center of a galaxy equivalent resolution of a telescope uh, the size of the Earth. So and a technological you know, feat to, to get all that data um, synced up and, 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 and all aligned. What, the, these two images that have been released, so the, people, the, the first one of this, this black hole in M87 was hit lots of um, uh, front pages of newspapers back in 20, 2020 it came out. Uh, 2019, 2020, 2019, something like yeah, that. A few years ago. This one... Uh, uh, didn't create quite as big a splash, partly because the image looks ra- rather similar. It's the same colour scale. It's a radio image, so it's false colour or representative colour. Um, it looks like a donut. Um, yeah. It's a ring. It's an orange. It's an orange ring. Um, and one of the staggering things, one, one of the perhaps surprising, perhaps not surprising, I'm not sure, is that this black hole is a thousand times smaller than the black hole in M87, and yet what we see of the stuff around the black hole, rather than the black hole itself, looks almost identical. And and that's that's general relativity, Einstein's theory of general relativity that basically says it doesn't matter what size these things are, they behave in the same way, just a thousand times bigger. Yeah, and this is it's actually quite an interesting phenomenon because uh, uh, it looks like a donut, but it looks like a donut from wherever you look at it. 
because of uh, this weird effect called gravitational lensing. Um, and you see the stuff behind it um, uh, because of the, the weird warping that the, the intense gravitational field does. Um, so uh, that's why they look, you know, one of them's not an O and one of them's not like a line um, because they, they basically will look very similar. They look very similar actually to um, the black hole in uh, the film Interstellar, if you were to be able to, to look at them. Um, it's, uh, it's, you know, that's, that's, that's just what they'll look like. And really, you're not looking at the black hole. You're looking at the stuff, like you said, the stuff around the black hole, the stuff that's all rubbing together uh, as it's processing around the black hole about to be gobbled up. Mm. And, and so we're looking at that, that material. And one of the challenges I know with this, this black hole uh, is in the center of our galaxy. So Sagittarius A star is that because it's um, n- not as big as the one in M87, the stuff is orbiting, the stuff is closer to it, a thousand times closer to it. It's, it's uh, about the same distance as the, the orbit of Mercury, if I recall, from, from the black hole uh, itself. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty close in in the, in the grand scheme of things. And that means it's moving relatively quickly. Uh, and so this thing is changing as this stuff whizzes around the uh, whizzes around the, uh, the black hole. And that poses a difference. It blurs out the image, essentially, as, it, as you're trying to take a long exposure of, of, of this. So it's, it's been a, a, a challenge to get that uh, uh, to get that right. But fantastic to have this, this data. And it will hopefully, by getting more of, the, more of this information about what these black holes, how these black holes are behaving, set us to test general relativity and I guess understand which came first, the galaxy or the black hole? Age-old astro- astronomical question now. So we're going to move closer to home, and uh, we're going to look at uh, satellites and space junk and, and so on. Now, Edward, with, with Las Cumbras Observatory, with your uh, your organisation, uh, satellites uh, passing across the, the field view of the telescope must be um, a, a bit of an issue, I'm sure, to, to deal with, and, and a growing issue, aren't they? Yes, um, we we do see satellites, um, satellite trails. So because we're taking exposures which are quite long, you always see a streak. You don't nece- you don't see a dot normally, uh, unless you're taking a very short exposure. Uh, and we do from time to time get a satellite in there. I actually was um, running a project last week with some schools in India, and uh, we happened to have two schools took a picture of exactly the same object and our telescope network um, it chose to take them on two telescopes at the same site at the same time and so we can see that there's this streak on the uh, on both images uh, that were taken of the same object which is really quite interesting um, of a satellite um, and uh, it's actually in a slightly different position because the two telescopes aren't actually you know uh, at exactly the same place, um, par- parallax and, and that's called parallax, yeah, because the satellite's much closer than the stars. Now you may have seen, if you've looked up at the night sky, a satellite passing over. It's something you might think was a plane, uh, but it's uh, actually just a single dot of light moving at a very steady pace across the sky. Often seen uh, here in the UK, at least near dawn and dusk, that tends to be when they're most visible. Although you can see them at any time of the night if you're. Uh, uh, particularly lucky. The best one that people often go and observe and might go and seek out is the International Space Station, which can be one of the brightest things in the sky when it goes over. And they move surprisingly quickly. Now, there are a few thousand uh, satellites uh, in orbit. We'll come on to quite how many there are uh, shortly. Uh, and one of the issues that's developing is quite how many there are and how many there might be in the future. And this is a growing problem and one that a lot of astronomers and other people in other uh, fields around the world are worried about. I'm joined by two people who have uh, done some analysis of the possible impacts of the growing number of satellites uh, up in space and the predicted impact on all sorts of aspects of life, but particularly astronomy. I'm joined by Dr. Meredith Rawls, who's a research scientist at the University of Washington, who works on the Vera Rubin Observatory, a big telescope uh, that's going to be observing large swathes of the sky in the not too distant future at all. And Professor Andy Lawrence, who's a Regius professor uh, at the, of astronomy at the Royal Observatory, Edinburgh. So welcome both uh, to the programme. Hi. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, Meredith, we'll, we'll start with you. As, as an observer, when you go out observing with, uh, with telescopes, um, 
as, as an, a, a casual observer, as an amateur astronomer, you might see a, a, a dot of light moving across the sky, and it can be interesting to point out to kids, particularly if it's something like the space station and so on. But what is, just in general, what's the impact of satellites on astronomical observations? Sure. So satellites aren't new, right? We've had satellites since like the 50s, but what's really changing right now is the, the number of them and the brightness of them. So they're a lot easier to spot in the way that you just described. And the, the impacts uh, are similar on astronomical observations as they are to um, amateur casual observers who just are stargazing. And that is that they reflect sunlight um, and they can appear really bright in our telescope images um, when you weren't expecting it. You know, you're expecting to get a picture of some stars and some galaxies. And instead, when you take a look at your picture after the fact, it has a bunch of stripes in it from the satellites passing through your field of view. And the reason that there's stripes is because the um, the satellites are orbiting the Earth really quickly, and so even if you took a really short exposure of the sky, uh, it'll just zoom across and always leave kind of a, a linear streak. Now sometimes the streaks can also get brighter, so they, the satellite might be rotating a little bit and changing how it reflects because they're not uh, uniform, right? They have more glinty parts and. And so that can also uh, show up in your image as you know a, a bright streak and then a really bright streak and then just kind of back to standard again. So, so that's, that's what it looks like for optical and near infrared uh, telescopes. They also show up for radio telescopes. And it's, it's both a reflection thing to a degree, but it's also especially an emission thing because these satellites are transmitting down to the earth. So, and they do that in radio frequencies, which can be a real problem if you're trying to do radio astronomy from the earth. And we're not expecting to observe a whole bunch of satellites, uh, you know, shouting internet down at the ground. I think something that might not be obvious to a lot of people is that um, uh, radio astronomers, a radio antenna, uh, although you point it in a particular direction, it sees a lot of stuff out sideways. Uh, so radio astronomers are always getting kind of blinded out the corner of their eye, as it were. So a satellite, any, it doesn't have to be right in your field of view. For the radio astronomers, a satellite anywhere in the sky can be sort of blaringly loud and give them real problems. And when, aside from things like the International Space Station, when we're looking up at the sky, if you just do naked eye observations and you see a satellite going across, you generally see them, they're roughly about the same, very roughly, about the same brightness as most of the stars you can see. They look like a little star moving across the sky, whereas in radio wavelengths, they tend to be stonkingly bright compared to, a technical term, uh, compared to the, the stuff you're looking at. I mean, radio astronomy is really faint stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's uh, that absolutely true. It, it's true the optical astronomy as well, as well, as though they're kind of similar to, um, to the bright stars. Uh, you know, mostly, and we're certainly going to be doing this with Rhea Rubin, we're looking at things which are really, really faint. Um, so it's, it's, it is a similar disparity. Um, it's just that with radio astronomy, you kind of see them all at once. <laughs> so it's, it's a horrible problem. Yeah, it's less localized for radio astronomy, uh, which makes it more challenging. Exactly. And, and I, I guess a massive data analysis, uh, data analysis problem. Now, now we mentioned this was getting worse. Uh, I, um, in a, some research for, for a book I was writing with a colleague about uh, seven years ago now. So back in 2015, uh, we did some some uh, little infographic of how many um, how many satellites and bits of debris up there. And, and looking back at that, uh, in 2015, start of 2015, there was something like uh, 4,000 satellites up there, most of which were dead. They were not working anymore. And I don't know, 1,000 or so of them were, uh, were still working, something like that. Uh, and there were about three times as many bits of, you know, rocket debris and, and little bits of stuff, flecks of paint and bolts and all sorts of things that have uh, separated from satellites uh, that, uh, uh, that are up there as well. So uh, 12, 13,000 uh, things like that up there. Now, we're in a bit of a different situation now, Andy, aren't we? Those numbers. So instead of being, you know, 4,000 satellites, most of which are dead and three times that in the sort of debris that, that goes with satellite launches. Um, the situation is rather different now, isn't it? Well, it's changing scarily fast, which is um, why this is all so worrying. Um, if, we, if we just take the currently active satellites, uh, then in late 2018, there are like 2,000 uh, and maybe 4,000 or so in total, including the dead ones, as you said. Um, but now already that's doubled. There's about 4,000 active satellites. Most of those is uh, because of um, uh, the Starlink project from, uh, from SpaceX, but not everything. Um, and when we look into the future, knowing 
how many there's going to be in a few years. Well, nobody knows, uh, but we're pretty terrified, um, both because uh, SpaceX and Starlink are kind of setting the trend of how you can launch loads of stuff really cheaply, uh, and everybody's playing catch up with uh, with SpaceX and, and and so on. But if we um, if you look at people's published plans, filings to licensing agencies, and so on, uh, then you come to the conclusion that uh, in a few more years there are going to be many tens of thousands, maybe a hundred thousand. There's a, there's a project which has proposed 300,000 satellites alone in a single project. Uh, so, you know, that hasn't happened yet, but things are changing so fast, we just really don't know where this is heading. And if it's difficult now, it's going to get much more difficult in the future with, you know, more than, what, 10, 20 times as many objects up there that, that are getting in our, our field of view. So, so Meredith, when you're using or you're, when you're planning to, to use things like uh, Vera Room Observatory, which sees big chunks of the, or relatively big chunks of the sky at any one time. Um, what's the predicted impact uh, of that many satellites uh, on on your observations? It's not awesome. It, it's tricky, as Andy says, to extrapolate realistically, right? Because you know, right now we're something like five thousand active satellites, uh, probably fifty five hundred actually. And uh, you know, if everyone does what they say they're going to do, by the time Rubin Observatory starts its ten year survey in two years, there's going to be a whole bunch more. So it's it, it, any simulation that you do for trying to assess the impact is a strong function. It depends a lot on exactly what the satellite population looks like. And that is like so unknown right now. So, so the best we've been able to do is to, to set um, kind of some guidelines for things that would help Rubin Observatory in particular. And that is, for example, we would like the satellite operators to design their satellites to not appear brighter than about seventh visual magnitude, which is roughly the faintest thing that you can see with your unaided eye on a dark, clear night. Um, if they can, and it's just a coincidence that it happens to be that that threshold um, for, from a visual perspective, because for Rubin Observatory's highly sensitive camera, that will mean that we don't get quite as many bad effects in the camera electronics that are hard to remove, um, like during image processing. But at the moment, most of the satellite operators have not been able to achieve that target for brightness. Most of them are, are brighter than that. So that doesn't bode super well. It is nice. And I am thankful that the satellite operator companies that astronomers have had conversations with, like they haven't said, you know, screw you astronomers, we don't care how bright our stuff is. That's not the response we've gotten. And I'm, I'm very grateful that they've been willing to talk to us and work with us. But we're kind of in this space right now, and Andy can elaborate on this, I'm sure, that anything that is done in the darkening mitigation realm from the satellite side is entirely voluntary. So, you know, it's not at all unrealistic to think that there might be a satellite operator that does in the future say, we don't care how bright we are, we're doing our thing. Um, which is kind of a problem. So, so, so the impact for Vera Rubin Observatory specifically is that we think that the majority of exposures will have at least one satellite trail in it. Now that might not be the end of the world at all. We're developing algorithms to like identify the trails and mask them. So identify where they are and like not use the pixels that are in the trail, but there's probably gonna be some weird side effects that we're not anticipating. This is just how it goes. So, you know, maybe some of them will be really glinty and cause weird overtones because they're too bright. So we get multiple streaks we have to deal with. You know, even the best algorithm isn't going to be able to find every single streak with 100% accuracy or a few are going to sneak through. And we'll probably accidentally have some signatures of satellites in our final data release catalogs. So I, I warn people about this. I say, hey, if you're going to be using Ruben science data products, which I hope you do because they're going to be awesome, you know, be aware there's going to be some level of satellite contamination. Like I'm going to do everything I can to minimize that. Um, but it, it's a real effect that's going to show up in our data somehow, like it or not. I thought I'd just pick up on that uh, glint thing that uh, Meredith referred to, because, um, you know, just uh, a couple of years ago, there was a very exciting observation published. I think, I think it was a paper in Nature. There was a kind of brief bright flash um, which the authors claimed was uh, a gamma ray burst with an optical counterpart at redshift 11. So, you know, the edge of the universe, hugely powerful thing, incredibly exciting uh, claim. And it turned out somebody asked them to publish a paper, uh, uh, tracked down that it was actually uh, a, a, a dead rocket part from a, a Russian proton rocket, uh, which had rotated and briefly done one of these glint things that Meredith was describing. 
Uh, and that's what had caused this flash. And it wasn't a gamma ray burst at the edge of the universe at all. So you just never know if you're going to get hit by something like that. So, you know, it's hard to predict what the sort of problems we could have. One possible problem that I wanted to highlight is it's something that you mentioned at the beginning, which is that you see the most of these when you're looking at the beginning or the end of the night, kind of closest to twilight. That is a real effect because most of the satellites are not in Earth's shadow shortly after sunset or shortly before sunrise. That is the same time when we have to do searches for near-Earth objects that could potentially crash into Earth. So a big part of what Rubin Observatory wants to do is find these quote-unquote killer asteroids, um, you know, or comets or whatever they are. And if we, if instead we're just getting a bunch of stripey satellites and all of our images, like we, we might not be able to let people know that there is a possible Earth impact or on the way until much sooner to the possible event, which is really not great. This isn't just astronomers saying, oh, you know, now I have to write some code to take out this image. Because I think astronomers being who astronomers are, if that was the case, they'd probably love the challenge to, you know, to, to do that extra bit of data analysis and, uh, and figure out. There, there will be very real effects on the, on the data. I mean, that's one, one aspect of, uh, of the science that's done, as you say, looking for these near-Earth objects. But there's other, I'm sure there must be other sciences that really don't want random streaks of light passing across their, their field of view. I mean, as Andy, you mentioned some of this stuff is really faint and having a even a faint streak across the sky can mess with the data, can't it? Uh, um, oh, yeah, yeah. So it's a kind of, it's a luck thing, you know. So um, for a wide field imager um, uh, like Vera Rubin, as Meredith said, there's going to be a streak in everything, but, you know, uh, it's going to be a, a, a modest but, um, but definite constant effect. Uh, but for some other observations, you might be okay. And on the other hand, your observation might get totally obliterated. Uh, and it's very hard to take account of that. Uh, and yeah, there's all sorts of um, uh, clever um, people sort of working on software, thinking about the problem. But I'm thinking, who's paying for those postdocs doing this clever stuff? Right? I mean, I'd rather they were working on uh, accretion disks or, uh, or galaxy evolution. Thank you very much. You know, somebody's that's, um, you know, that's our tax pounds uh, paying to cope with this stuff. And that's something that makes, makes me a bit cross. That's very, yeah, yeah. That's, that's very true. You're having to pay someone to clean up someone else's mess, essentially. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which is like, that's a classic environmental problem, right? I mean, uh, you know, uh, so some people do say, well, the polluter should pay and, you know, um, SpaceX or OneWeb or whoever should have some kind of fund that they pay to astronomy. I'm not sure that's a good precedent to set. I'd rather they didn't do the pollution in the first place. But that it's a classic um, environmental sort of problem in that respect. And as, as well as the environmental problem, there are there are cultural aspects to to this as well. I mean, astronomy is often described as the oldest science. I mean, people have been looking up at the skies for tens of thousands, you know, millions of years, I'm sure, and and studying. Or, certainly paying attention to what's up there. And, uh, and Andy, the, these cultural impacts go back a long way and can be quite significant. Firstly, there are millions of people uh, around the world um, who are keen stargazers, astrophotographers, you know, go camping, look through a pair of binoculars, you know, etc. It's a very, very popular hobby. And that is not, this is not a trivial thing. And to put that in perspective, right now, if you lift up a pair of binoculars and look at the sky, it might be a minute or two before you see a satellite. Um, if the kind of um, 100,000 or so satellites that we fear is there in a few years, you'll look through um, your binoculars, and every time you do that, you'll see 10 of them in, in a, say, a typical seven-degree field of view, and they'll be drifting across your, your field of view. So millions of keen stargazers and astrophotographers um, but then also, um, you know, some people in our community have been particularly concerned about the rights of indigenous people um, and, and their sky, who, you know, who did, did not ask for this to happen and for whom this sky has great cultural in, in importance. And uh, um, in, in Australia uh, and uh, in, uh, in the US, lots of indigenous peoples, the sky is just a really important thing. So, you know, what right do we have to kind of take it away from them. So that's uh, very important. And then in a broad cultural sense, it just, um, even the commercialization of space itself uh, is put at risk. Um, you know, the things we want to do in space, uh, it's, uh, we're, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. Um, this is 
coming on to a different problem, of course, which is the space junk problem, which I think a lot of people have heard about. You know, things are going to crash into each other. Uh, there's going to be a, not exactly a catastrophic sudden runaway, you know, but um, uh, the debris problem is going to get steadily worse. Uh, and if we're not careful, low Earth orbit is going to be almost unusable. So um, it, it's not good news all, all round, actually. There was one thing actually that struck me in the in the in the paper you recently published that if if you take this this prediction of how many satellites there might be in you know five or ten years, let's call it ten years, then it might be that when you look up at the sky, there are about as many satellites that you can see as there are stars that you see with the with the naked eye to sort of you know rough rough uh, numbers. Which at the moment, if you look up at the sky and you see what a handful of satellites, if you if you're lucky, that's that's astonishing to think that. There might be that many, and therefore any—I mean, Andy, you mentioned amateur ast amateur astronomy and trying to navigate the skies, but any, any chance to navigate the skies is much hindered by uh, thousands of little points that are moving and you know squirming around in your vision uh, the whole time. Uh, well, yes, indeed, uh, and from that point of view, um, you know, as Meredith mentioned, and uh, our conversations that the communities had with some of the operators, trying to make them just a bit darker, at least at least if they get below. The threshold of uh, naked eye visibility—that's uh, something. Doesn't doesn't really protect Rubin, I don't think. But um, uh, oh, it's it's still a problem. Um, it, uh, we have a, a mutual uh, colleague. I'm sure you've heard Jonathan McDowell um, uh, put this in a very nice way. He had, has this horrifying vision that there may there may be thousands of them, but are just faint enough that they're right at the edge of, of visibility. And you'll have this kind of unsettling feeling of the sky sort of wriggling and squirming. <laughs> so that's that's uh, that's the nightmare vision. Well, it's it's a problem that uh, I share your hope that something can be done uh, in the coming years before this gets uh, too bad has too many detrimental impacts on uh, astronomy or any other uh, field on uh, on the Earth or, or, or off the Earth, I guess. Um, so, Dr. Meredith Rawls and Professor Andy Lawrence, uh, thanks very much. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. If, if folks would like to get involved and help with this effort, we do have a new International Astronomical Union uh, Center. It's, it's called the Center for the Protection of the Dark and Quiet Sky from Satellite Constellation Interference. Its work just got underway a month ago, so it's very slow. There's not even a good website up yet. Um, but this is intended to be a center where folks who are concerned about this issue uh, and have any kind of background and expertise can kind of come together and, and work on the problem. So if you're interested in, in helping out, that would be a, a resource that I would point you to. Yeah, and for, for amateur astronomers, there's a good Facebook site group as well, so I'd recommend that. To explore a little bit more about satellites and what they're up there for and the impacts they're having and how they might be mitigated, I'm delighted to be joined by uh, Dr. Mariba Jar, who is Associate Professor at the University of Texas in Austin. Uh, he's also co-founder co and Chief Scientist of Privateer Space. So thanks very much for coming uh, on the program, uh, Murray, but um, yeah, thanks for having me. Sure. First of all, um, can you give us a, satellites? We see them up in the night sky and we hear about them on the news. We see videos that are being launched and, and so on. Can you give a brief overview of, of what they're used for? Because we might know about GPS satellites that our, our phones or whatever connect to, but they're, they're an awful lot more than that, aren't they? Yeah, I, I will say that um, most satellites up there are either, um, you know, the whole position navigation and timing is probably the least amount of stuff that uh, these things provide, uh, not in importance, but uh, in terms of like number of satellites providing that. I would say the bulk of satellites uh, are um, really focused on providing, um, you know, communications. So communications links, that sort of stuff. Um, and also earth imaging. So earth observation, uh, taking photos of different parts of the planet for a variety of reasons, everything from uh, human-based uh, activity to climate change and these sorts of things. And now global internet, apparently. And, and so they really are a, a pretty integral part of our lives. There's very little that we could do, certainly in a, in a technological world these days, that isn't impacted in some way 
perhaps indirectly by satellites, I suppose. Well, yeah, I mean, I, th I think another way to say it is um, space helps humanity know more about itself in ways that otherwise it could not. Now, in terms of the numbers of satellites, one of the things that's uh, changed in the last few years is the number of satellites has hugely increased. Uh, so from... Uh, it has doubled, at least. So the number of working satellites has doubled just in the past couple of years. And what's, what's, what has changed to allow that? Because there haven't been more, there haven't been a double, well, maybe there have been. Have there been double the number of rocket launchers? What, what's changed to allow that? Yeah, so I, I think the thing that people need to understand is the first satellite that we launched was Sputnik in uh, 1957. Um, and from 1957 to 2020, whatever, whatever the satellites that are actually working in space um, between those years, that is doubled between 2020 and 2022. That's the thing that people need to, that has to be an oh my goodness moment, I think. And, and certainly uh, SpaceX having a way to get access to orbital space more readily, more cheaply contributes to that. And, you know, back in the beginning of our space era, when we launched a satellite, it was like one satellite per rocket. Now, with the Starlink satellites that SpaceX launches, for instance, that's like 60 satellites for every rocket ride. So, so our ability to put more satellites in one single launch has increased significantly. And the satellites are rather different than they are. So a couple of decades ago, we were launching satellites. These are generally pretty big beasts that are incredibly, well, I mean, they're still incredibly expensive, but they, they were really, yeah. really expensive and, and, you know, incredibly complex machines doing many, many things. Satellites these days, such as the, the Starlink network that, that SpaceX are putting up and OneWeb and all these kind of things, that each satellite itself is, um, well, not a simple piece of technology compared with the things that were being launched a while ago. They're, they're much simpler in their own right. Is that fair? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that before it was more of a Lord of the Rings, one satellite to rule them all kind of thing. Now capability is distributed amongst many satellites that are, each one is cheaper, but the aggregate of all the satellites in a constellation, as, as we call it, uh, you know, provides uh, some pretty uh, great capability. And as a result of technological advances, miniaturization, uh, has also helped since the first satellites as well. So just all the components, I guess, are just much, much smaller. I mean, I guess, I guess if you compare a laptop these days to a, or an iPad, you know, a tablet to a computer of even 10 years ago. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right. And it's like compare your iPhone, uh, which has more, more capability than like uh, an aircraft hangar back in the 60s worth of com computer equipment. The other thing with satellites is that when getting them up into orbit is is all very well. That's one that's one element of sticking one or sixty or hundreds of them on a rocket and launching it up. But then mm. where they go up there is uh, important as well. So how does one choose so the orbit they're in, the altitude and, and inclination and all that kind of stuff? How does one choose, or what affects the choice of where satellites go once they're up there? I, I think mostly people need to say, you know, what do I want the end capability to be? So for instance. If you want global internet, um, that means that you want people to uh, not have any sort of degradation in the internet connectivity, right? It's like if I'm connected to the internet and supposedly I have like 5G internet connection, I don't want for 5G just to be sporadic. I want it to be persistent. Um, so with global internet, if you say, oh, yeah, I want persistent signals for people on the ground, then you have to say, how many satellites do I need in order to provide that? And the thing is, if the, if the satellites are transmitting, uh, you know, basically the, 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 the power in the signal decreases uh, very rapidly. Uh, so the farther out you are, the, the, the weaker the signal is by the time it gets to the ground and the more power that you need to maintain a certain signal, 
So that means that altitude works against you. So basically you want to say, I want things as close to the earth as possible. But if they're very close to the earth, uh, that means in terms of orbital mechanics, they're traveling much faster. So that means you need more satellites. The closer you are, then the thing that works against you is you need more satellites to provide the same kind of coverage. So then that's seeking the sweet spot, as they say in design space, right, is being able to balance out altitude and power requirements with number of satellites to provide a specific coverage so that the end result is transparent to the user on the ground. The user on the ground could care less what orbital altitude, whatever. The user on the ground just wants persistent internet. So these are the things that uh, feed into the choice of where and how many uh, to launch. And I guess there's a comparison between, if you think back to satellite TV of 20 years ago, where there was one geostationary satellite. So you, the satellite on the side of someone's house was pointed at one spot in the sky and there was one satellite up there and there were probably, mm -hmm. what, a handful of them around in, in various orbits around, exactly. around, around the world. But that satellite is 40,000 kilometers away. That's right. Which is, what's that, 100 times further, if I've done my maths. Yeah, 100 times further than the satellites that are just you know in low Earth orbit whizzing around at least uh, that, overhead. yeah. No. Okay, so so that distance is getting them closer is good, but you have to launch more. Hence, lots of tiny satellites to to get the to get the coverage, exactly. and that's that's, that's right. why there are all these constellations. Okay, um, so you've got thousands now, thousands and thousands of satellites buzzing around, and the predictions are that there could be tens of thousands in just a few years. What are the impacts, or what? Are, sorry, the, what are the risks of that on? I like satellite. how you said, I said, I love how you said impacts because that is the, the crux, well, right? Yeah. We want, I, I, I could kind of see that you caught yourself there. So yeah, we want to, we don't want impacts literally, right? We want, uh, or figuratively, but certainly we want, we don't want these things colliding with each other. So that's the thing that we're trying to prevent for sure is um, when you have higher number of objects, it's kind of like with air traffic. It's like, well, what, what is the consequence of, you know, having, I don't know, 10,000 more planes flying in the air. Well, if you have really good air traffic control capabilities, maybe it's not so bad. Mm. But if in the absence of having uh, norms of behavior in, in the air and a pretty robust air traffic control system that can hand things off between countries and that sort of stuff, in the absence of that, then one can imagine bad things would happen. And so with outer space, traffic we don't have norms of behavior and we don't have any sort of coordinated space traffic rules like air traffic control so that means launching a bunch you know a bunch more satellites will will necessarily result in a detrimental outcome as is and so that's where satellites crash into each other and that's i mean there have been attempts to do that deliberately so various nations have done targeted attacks on satellite or tests of, of, of attacks to take down other satellites and, and mm -hmm. physically destroy them. But most of the risks there, I guess, are, are accidental. It's, it's satellites accidentally crashing in into each other. That's the, that's the worry, I suppose. Yeah. Um, uh, and that, yeah, that, that gets much, much more. What, why, what is to stop everyone putting, what, why can't we just move the satellites out the way? It might be a naive question, but you know, stick a few thrusters on them and move them out. Why, why isn't that possible? So the thing is, we can move satellites quite easily. The problem is predicting when we need to do that. And so the things that influence our perception of where things are, are the actual physics, which we don't know, our models of the physics, which are flawed and imperfect, the measurements that we can collect about stuff in space, um, our models of those measurements, which don't necessarily match, and then our choice of trying to infer, you know, where things are. So five things actually influence um, our perception. And all the decisions are made on perception, not truth. So the thing is, things are happening in space. How do we know? Well, if you want to know something, you have to measure it. So we have radars and telescopes to measure things. But the radars and telescopes are also flawed. They're not perfect sensors. There's no such thing as a truth sensor. So basically, we have to work with flawed measurements, flawed models. And so... All of our decisions are mired in uncertainty. And so we have to make decisions under uncertainty. And so that's the thing that makes things complicated. And when you say the, the physics we don't know and the, and the modeling we don't know, if, 
I often describe people, you know, launching satellites into orbits. Once you get a satellite in orbit, uh, if it's high enough, it, it basically it it stays there. But that's not quite true, is it? It's not quite that simple, unfortunately. What what things affect a satellite when it's up in orbit? Yeah. So um, you know, the biggest thing influencing orbital motion is this thing called, called gravity or curvature of space time, as uh, our friend Albert would say. But um, there's also things that have nothing to do with gravity that also affect motion, like, um, you know, the heat and particles, uh, light particles from the sun that actually move satellites in different directions. And um, those reflected light particles from the earth onto the satellite as well. If the satellite is sufficiently low, then, you know, particles in the upper atmosphere colliding or bombarding against the surfaces also uh, change the, the, the orbital motion. So yeah, there's gravity and there's everything else. And the everything else is very much unknown because all of these things depend on the satellites, you know, shape, material properties, orientation, and all these things, which are mostly unknown. So it's a very, very complex, complex problem to try and solve. And as you say, you just have to be constantly vigilant and watching, watching the skies. And we, we do that to some extent, as you say, no sensor is perfect, no detector is perfect, but we are observing the sky to look for these things. How, how well does that work at the moment? It doesn't work really awesome because it's like, how well does the Eye of Sauron work, right? Lord of the Rings. And the Eye of Sauron works really well for wherever the eye is looking. For wherever the eye is looking, it's pretty ineffective. So, uh, you know, didn't quite get the whole Frodo going into Mordor with the ring kind of thing. So people should be able to imagine that countries and different companies all have a few eyes of Sauron, but these things are not ubiquitous. They can't see everywhere all the time. So that's part of the detriment is that we don't combine whatever all of these eyes see in an, as an aggregate. We don't do that. So that's part of the problem. And is that even for like the, the international organization? So obviously, uh, I, get, I don't know whether NASA you call international, but NASA is one of the big space agencies, of course, uh, with, with partners around the world and stations, radar stations around the world. ESA here in Europe have stations around the world. Do, do groups like that all work together? Um, no, to some extent, they all, all do it separately. Yep, right. they all do it separately. And whenever they have opinions about where stuff is, they might share the opinions, but they don't share the evidence from which they drew those conclusions. So that's the thing that's missing is that people aren't sharing their observations. And it, is that uh, politics at play between yeah, this? Yeah, absolutely. And of course, I mean, NASA and ESA collaborate a lot. There are other space agencies around the world that. Uh, much less collaborative, certainly with NASA and ESA, certainly right now. The way I guess that problem is even worse in terms of uh, keeping, you know, keeping an eye on what's well, uh, what's up there. Well, I'll say this: NASA and ESA do share observations on um, satellite missions that maybe they're collaborating on. Like I remember when I worked at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, I was part of the team that helped ESA with Mars Express, getting 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 you know Europe its first successful satellite at Mars and NASA's deep space network and, and, and Goldstone, Canberra and Madrid collected tracking data on Mars Express. And that was provided to the European Space uh, Operations Center in Darmstadt, Germany. And then ESA had its uh, dish called uh, New Norcia in Australia on the uh, West Coast that it could provide data on. So among space agencies on dedicated scientific uh, missions, they have exchanged sensor data measurements. So there's precedence, but for things just in general, space surveillance type stuff, that's not done. In, in terms of, I mean, I guess that's maybe one, one of the obvious answers then to the, to the next question is all these problems with satellites crashing in together and uh, cr crashing together, sorry, and, and, and causing problems for themselves uh, are one, one element of this. What, are there any risks to us here on Earth? from these satellites. I mean, yes, it would be annoying for me as a user if my internet went down because a satellite had crashed into another satellite and taken out the satellites if I was using satellite internet. Would, would, but there are any you know, risks to us on Earth from this increased number of satellites that we're seeing? I mean, look, um, I'm looking at the war in Ukraine. Uh, there's evidence of part of what allows the rest of the world to 
take certain diplomatic actions and, and, and maybe apply these kind of constraints this side or the other is information. And this information is uniquely provided by space-based platforms. We have satellites imaging Ukraine and we can see where the troops are going, who's doing what to whom, right? That sort of evidence feeds decision-making. So things like that could get wiped out by a piece of junk. And you know, it's not like we have these things sitting on shelves ready to launch at a moment's notice. So that would be impactful. And then also, I mean, um, you know, some of these things are quite massive. They do re-enter the atmosphere and some, sometimes they survive re-entry. So you could get a big rocket body that survives and basically, you know, hits a populated area. And that would be, if people think like a war in Ukraine with the missiles launched or whatever, if that's bad, um, that has nowhere near the power, hundreds of times less uh, effect than a big rocket body traveling at extremely high speeds, quite massive, that survives re-entry and hits a populated area. That would be a very bad day. Okay, so there are there are real risks to having too many of these things up there because all these chances just continue to uh, to rise, increase. Yeah, how do we mitigate this? How how do we stop this happening? We're going to stop launching launching satellites tomorrow, right? I mean, the, and I don't We're... think anyone is suggesting we stop launching satellites tomorrow. But how can we lessen the impacts of all these these problems? So here's the thing: I think that three things need to happen measurably. People have to come together to make space more transparent. So what's up there? Who does it belong to? What can it do? People have to come together to make space more predictable. Where are things going to be over the next hours, minutes, days, weeks, what have you? Um, and, and in a given situation, how are in any given two people going to behave? And then the last one is, how do we develop an, a body of evidence to hold people accountable for their behavior? So if everybody says, hey, these things result in a detriment to the environment are, are counter to long-term sustainability. So don't do them. And everybody brings together evidence that shows that Amberland or, you know, Acme Incorporated did something counter to that. Then, then, you know, just like when people fail to meet certain guidelines, rules, or regulations, there are ways to get compensated for that or, 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 you know, prosecute that or whatever. But in the absence of that evidence, there's nothing to be done. So transparency, predictability, and accountability, those are three measuring sticks that people should rally around. And I think that's when we start getting to turn, turning things around in a positive direction. And I guess that the, the global nature of the satellite industry or the space industry is where that's a problem. Because if you, have a, if you have something that's on the ground, normally, not always, but normally affects the local area. So it might be uh, traffic rules or aircraft rules over a certain country. Satellites, by their very de definition, uh, not over a given country. They go, they go everywhere and, and, and they're over everything. That's sort of the point of some of them. So that, that must get very difficult. Is, is there any sign that countries are starting to think about this at a serious level, sort of politically or geopolitically? Yeah, I think some countries definitely have. And at the United Nations Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, 93 countries signed by consensus a set of guidelines for long-term sustainability. Now the question is, how do these countries that signed interpret that and how will they implement that? Those are the next relevant questions. Okay. And at Privateer Space, where you're co-founder and chief scientist, what a, what's your role in this? Do you have a role in, in how this develops in the future? What are your plans? Yeah, so, so my role... Uh, as chief scientist is to help privateer develop a platform that basically measurably helps space become more transparent, predictable, and holds people accountable for their behaviors. And um, for people that have really great ideas, developers that would want to build applications to address these things, if they just had the right data at the right time, in the right format, that's what I want to help them get access to, uh, you know, via privateers platform. So for people who really want to help and, and, and take this in the right direction to help facilitate that in some way, I guess, to, to give them the tools to help them do it easily and cheaply yeah. and efficiently. And, yeah. And, and I mean, basically imagine privateer being like an iPhone equivalent where, where the platform like the iPhone has some capability, has some apps already on it. Um, but, you know, even though the iPhone comes with like Safari and maps and something else, 
some people are like, oh, I don't like mail. I like Outlook. I don't like maps. I like Google Maps. You know, I don't like this Safari. I want, you know, Google Chrome. So we want to be able to have a platform with our own apps that provides utility and helps people. And at the same time, encourage developers to have their own apps writing on the platform that could even compete with it or, yeah, just give people options. Yeah. And so the goal is we don't end up in a situation where we've got tens, hundreds of thousands of satellites crashing into each other. And I guess in, in science, science fiction circles, that's Kessler syndrome, right? Where space then becomes unusable um, because there's so much stuff out there. So uh, steering us away from uh, that nightmare. Yeah, I, I, I would say I, I'm not really a big fan of Kessler. I'm more a fan of orbital carrying capacity being saturated. So yes, space could become unusable because an orbital highway's carrying capacity is exceeded. Oh, just because if you put two more stuff up there, the risks of it getting hit and so on are just higher. Yeah, so basically you could think of the carrying capacity being exceeded when your decisions and actions can no longer prevent bad things from happening. Okay. So if you're, try if you're trying to be safe, you're trying to avoid bad things from happening and everything you're trying to do doesn't result in that, by all intents and purposes, that orbit is no longer usable. And I guess maybe that's some of the impetus from some people saying, well, we'll get there first. Uh, I guess that's the worry when you have private organizations and so on, because there's nothing, as you say, there's nothing to stop them just getting there first at the moment. That's right. Filling up that, uh, uh, that capacity. Yes. Well, fingers crossed this can all be uh, addressed in the coming years. And I guess quickly is the, uh, is the issue. There is not long before this starts to become a, a serious issue. So, uh, Good luck. I hope it goes well with uh, with private space and all the other efforts around the world to uh, to address address this. Uh, Dr. Marie Bajar, uh, thank you very much. Thank you. That's it for this month. Thanks very much to Edward, to Meredith, Andy, and Mariba. Uh, don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast and find past episodes at pythagastro.uk, or you can find us on Spotify. Just search for Pythagorean Astronomy. Until next month, goodbye. <laughs> You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy, an extended version of this month's Astronomy Roundup from Pythagoras' Trousers, a weekly science and technology radio show presented by me, Rhys Phillips. You can catch up on full episodes of Pythagoras' Trousers, subscribe to our podcast and get in touch by going to www.pythagoras-trousers.radio.fm. <laughs>